With Ohio's March primary approaching, businessman Bertie Moreno has emerged as the candidate to beat in a contentious GOP U.S. Senate race. But will the eventual Republican nominee have the money he needs to take on the Democratic incumbent, Senator Sherrod Brown? In Kentucky, the General Assembly is rolling out a series of election reform bills that could limit voter access. And in Indiana, the AG rolls out a portal to post complaints about education and stirs up criticism from teachers. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. We've got a full hour of regional politics today with a panel of journalists who cover what's happening in each of our state capitals. Joining me now are Ohio Public Media State House News Bureau Bureau Chief, Karen Kassler. Welcome back, Karen. Hey, great to be here, Lucy. Great to have you. Kentucky Public Radio Capital reporter, Sylvia Goodman. Thanks for being here, Sylvia. Happy to be here. And Indiana Public Broadcasting State House Bureau Chief, Brandon Smith. Welcome back, Brandon. Always great to be here. We always love having all of you here, and we want to hear from you. What news are you watching at the State House? Give us a call at 513-419-7100 or email talk at wvxu.org. We've got this primary coming up in Ohio in March and Kentucky and Indiana. The primaries are in May. Uh, Karen, the GOP Senate primary is the one to watch in Ohio. I know there was a recent poll that showed Secretary of State Frank LaRose and Bernie Moreno neck and neck. But has anyone emerged as the front runner? I mean, I think polls at this point are are really hard to get a sense of the race from because I think a lot of people aren't prepared for the March primary. Um, Most Ohioans are used to primaries being in May, but of course, in presidential years, they're in March. And so this is maybe kind of sneaking up on some people, but certainly... I feel like Bernie Marino has a bit of an edge here because he did get the Trump endorsement that certainly Frank LaRose wanted and Senator Matt Dolan had suggested he wouldn't turn away from. And so with Marino getting that endorsement, other endorsements have followed him. And so I think that Marino is probably emerging as a front runner. He's certainly on the air a lot more than either of the other two. And people are going to see more of his ads as we get even closer. Hmm. Brandon and Sylvia, how powerful is a Trump endorsement in your states? I mean, is that something all the the Republican candidates really want to get there to? In Indiana, um, U.S. Senator Mike Braun, who's one of the six Republican candidates for governor um, in in that open primary uh, this year, he got the Trump endorsement pretty early last year. And He's definitely the front runner. Is it because he got the Trump endorsement or because he has the most name recognition as a U.S. senator? Maybe um, it's it's hard to say for sure. But I think it definitely doesn't hurt the fact that he is in the polls that we've seen, which are relatively limited. Indiana is, is historically a very difficult state to poll for whatever reason. Uh, but in the polls we've seen, uh, Braun is definitely out front with a pretty sizable lead against the other five candidates. That being said, um, a lot of people have described his support as rather soft. There's a lot of undecided voters in those polls that we have seen. Um, so his his election is not by any means a foregone conclusion. But having that Trump endorsement in a state like Indiana, which elected Trump by double digits in each of the last two election cycles, is certainly going to help in a Republican primary. Sylvia, I feel like Kentucky could be a little bit of an outlier in that because former Attorney General 
Daniel Cameron had President Trump's or former President Trump's endorsement in the governor's race, didn't he? Yeah. And, you know, I was about to say something similar that uh, the Trump endorsement may have helped Cameron in the primaries. Uh, you know, one of his challengers in the primary was also uh, uh, endorsed by Ron DeSantis. Uh, and, uh, you know, but Donald Trump went out at the end of the day in the primary. But uh, for that you know, actual general election, it didn't seem to give Cameron much of a boost. Obviously, Donald Trump, after uh, Andy Bashir, our current Democratic governor, won re-election. Uh, Donald Trump took credit for any gains that <laughs> Daniel Cameron may have had in the final days, you know, leading up to the election. But Bashir won by five points. It was a pretty comfortable lead, uh, certainly a huge improvement over when he was first elected to office. That was an incredibly close vote. Um, I believe just a few thousand difference uh, with his uh, against his challenger in that race. But yeah, it, it's hard to say if the Donald Trump endorsement uh, really gave Daniel Cameron such a huge boost against especially against uh, our current governor. Yeah. Karen, why is this Ohio Senate race so important nationally? There, there are folks all over the country watching this one. Yeah, and I would say in Ohio, the last time we saw a U.S. Senate race was just two years ago in 2022. And the Trump endorsement really made a difference in that race because Senator J.D. Vance, who ended up winning over Democratic nominee Tim Ryan, he got that endorsement out of a seven-person field in 2022, and it moved him up. He had been kind of in the middle there before the Trump endorsement. Once he got that, he moved up to the top of the pack and ended up winning the primary and then ended up winning, of course, the whole election. This is a big deal because Sherrod Brown, the incumbent Democratic senator who's been there since 2006, is, is seen as potentially vulnerable this year because he's really the only statewide elected Democrat, save for a couple of Supreme Court justices. And it's likely that we're going to see money pouring in from both Republican and Democratic sources, as well as all of the other associated non-political party groups that uh, will come into this. So this is going to be a really expensive race because I think Democrats feel that it's critical to hang on to that seat and hang on to Sherrod Brown because they're losing so many other. I mean, there are seven senators across the country who are not running for re-election and five of them are Democrats. And when you've got like Joe Manchin in West Virginia not running, that seat is very likely to switch to Republican. So this is a seen as a critical win for Democrats and Republicans see it as a possible pickup. Mm -hmm. So it could change the balance of the U.S. Senate, the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. Absolutely. And, and you know, Sherrod Brown has had some success in running since Donald Trump became a thing. Uh, he ran in 2018 and won. But the question is, can he come back this year? I mean, Donald Trump has won Ohio in 2016 and 2020 by about eight points both times. So whether Sherrod Brown can speak to the Republican voters who were dominating these elections is something that remains to be seen. We're talking about regional politics for the full hour today. You can join the conversation by calling 513-419-7100, or you can email talk at wvxu.org. Karen, what's the money looking like in this race in terms of fundraising? Who's who's got the deepest pockets to spend on this so far? Well, definitely when you talk about the money that's being spent, I mean, I'm just looking at some numbers, um, ads, TV ads, and all three of the candidates apparently have done some uh, TV spending. But you've got Marino and Dolan who are running kind of neck and neck. And LaRose is the one that's really been behind. And he's been behind throughout this. I mean, he 
comes into this race with a lot less money than both Marino and Dolan, who are independently wealthy on their own. And uh, he, he's just, I think the Trump endorsement could potentially really help Marino in this department. Uh, Dolan is actually leading the way. He's got $4.8 million. And then you've got uh, Marino just behind him with $2 million. Secretary of State Frank LaRose, $700,000. So he's way behind in an election that is going to be very expensive, already is, and it's not going to get any cheaper. Hmm. Well, I know you're going to keep watching that. I want to talk now about election security bills that have come up in um, Ohio and, and well, last last go round in Ohio, but also but currently in Kentucky and Indiana, um, Sylvia, a whole bunch of bills have been proposed this year to change Kentucky elections from changing when statewide elections occur to changing the type of photo ID voters can use to even a constitutional amendment. Um, there, a Senate Republicans bill would eliminate three days of early voting and require no excuse in person voting to take place only on election day. Republican Secretary of State Michael Adams voiced concern about that this month on KET. We'd be going to just one day. Uh, we'd be trying to shoehorn two million voters into one day. I think it would be really bad for our image as a state. And I appreciate that we're working really hard in Frankfurt to, to cut taxes and to streamline red tape and court businesses. We have these big job announcements. The more that we make Kentucky look like a backwards place for people don't want to move to, it's going to be hard just not just to attract investment and jobs, but hard to keep our kids here. How much traction is that bill getting, Sylvia? Is, is there a lot of support in the state house for this bill that would eliminate early voting? So in Kentucky, we actually got those three days of uh, early voting pretty recently. That was during the pandemic that that was expanded. Uh, and so obviously that passed in a Republican majority with a lot of the same members that are currently there. So I don't know that there is a lot of traction, particularly to remove those three days of early voting. Uh, they've proven pretty popular in the state. There is, however, traction around a few of the other components of this sort of platform to take away some of those uh, broadenings of um, you know allowing more people to vote in in certain ways. So for example, uh, a bill to remove the ability for student IDs to be used as proof of identification uh, at the ballot box, that has already passed the Senate. We've seen that in a few other states. Uh, but, you know, an other bill to no longer allow credit cards as a secondary form of ID uh, is has been introduced. You know, it's hard to tell if these will make it all the way through uh, the legislature. But I know Secretary of State Michael Adams, who is also a Republican, has stood against them. Uh, and, you know, he's made that argument that he that you showed in that clip before the idea that it makes Kentucky look bad, <laughs> if nothing else, to to be taking away certain uh, voter abilities. Um, but at the same time, we're also seeing some bills that are I would say on the clearly election denier inspired side of things uh, that are that are concerning that are also unlikely to get traction but you never know until the end of the day so for example requirements that all voting systems be made in the US or uh you know uh, an inclusion that all elections have to be certified with a full voter tally a hand tally things like that uh, that are really unlikely to get traction uh but I think we are going to continue to hear discussions about this on the House and Senate floor. Uh, we're, I'm definitely, we're not, this is not the last time we've heard about removing student IDs as a proof of identification. So this is definitely going to be a big topic of conversation in the Senate and House. Brandon, what is Indiana's proposed election security bill? What would that bill do? 
Yeah, this this year's election security bill is really about providing the state more ways to try and kick people off of the voter rolls to to identify um, more sources where their their election, their voter registration data might not match. Um, like, for instance, one of the provisions in the bill says, oh, the state is going to buy um, uh, everyone on the voter rolls credit information. So from a, a credit rating agency like Experian. Um, they're going to buy all that information and then try to compare the addresses on the credit information to their address on the voter registration data. And it, if it doesn't match, then they're going to start the process potentially of kicking that person off the voter rolls. Now, that process is federally mandated, so it doesn't happen quickly. It takes two different federal election cycles, multiple mailings by the county election officials in order to remove someone um, more permanently from the voter rolls. And, and all the person has to do really to make sure they stay on is is vote in an election over those two, anytime within those two, two cycles. Uh, but there's also a, a provision about comparing, uh, again, trying to find more ways to kick people off the rolls. It would um, require the state to look at the state's Bureau of Motor Vehicles data about um, temporary um, uh, IDs, essentially driver's licenses that are given out to non-citizens. Um, uh, so not illegal uh, people who come here illegally, but people who aren't um, who aren't citizens of the U.S. get these sort of different credentials um, to designate that because obviously a, a driver's license can be used as a voter ID in, in Indiana. And the problem with that system is it's often as many as eight years old or out of date, rather. And so they're now saying, oh, but if you show up on this BMV system, well, we're just going to say you can't vote because you're a non-citizen. And in order and, and, and the only way you can vote is you have to, within 30 days, come to us and say, here's my proof of citizenship. Well, the problem immigration attorneys have said is most of the, 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 the ways you prove your citizenship under the bill with the documentation required under this bill take way more than 30 days to get access to. Uh, one immigration attorney here in Indianapolis said she had checked the day of the committee hearing and said it took seven weeks to get the document that the state was requiring for proof of citizenship. So now you're potentially right away barring people from voting who are legal citizens of the United States and should be allowed to vote. Um, but Republicans say, well, our election's secure, but they aren't secure enough and they're just forging ahead um, that bill so far has not really gone any, um, undergone any significant changes. Brandon, has Indiana had significant voter fraud problems that these bills are trying to address? No. Um, like every state, there is isolated incidents of voter fraud in Indiana, um, but it's a pretty minuscule number compared to the number of ballots cast, which again is a, is a theme nationwide. The The percentage of um, of fraudulent voting is infinitesimally smaller than the number of ballots cast. And in Indiana, actually, what we've seen is not so much um, voter fraud at the ballot box. It's much more like people trying to get access or register um, uh, illegally or things like that or register multiple times in multiple places. And a, and a few county clerks have testified on this year's bill that they have cases in their own counties where, oh, someone was, reg was registered twice and this access to this you know, credit information might have caught that. Um, might have caught that. Uh, but again, these are isolated cases that critics of the bill say don't warrant these sweeping changes.
Sylvia, are any of these proposals in Kentucky designed to fix a problem that the Commonwealth has had with its election procedures or election security? There's definitely a lot of bills to kind of like what Brandon was saying to clean up the state's voter rolls. Um, You know, I don't think we've seen something quite uh, to that scale, but we have seen uh, a bill that would uh, allow people who've been registered or have been requested for jury duty, but excused for non-citizenship. So those names have to go to the Secretary of State's office. I'm not sure how many people that really applies to, but uh, that's in one bill. And then uh, we've also seen uh, this a state a constitutional amendment that has passed both the House and Senate. Uh, hasn't neither has gotten full approval from both chambers, uh, but you know it's not. It's quite likely that that will happen. That would uh, make it explicit in our state constitution that no non-citizen can vote in our elections. Um, no non-citizens are currently allowed to vote in Kentucky elections. Uh, so I guess uh, the sponsors of the bill say it's preemptive uh, because they think that the Constitution could be potentially construed to say that non-citizens can vote. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing a lot of this talk about non-citizens voting, about non-citizens being registered to vote. I can't say that there's evidence of that necessarily, maybe a few isolated cases that are being prosecuted. Um, but yeah, so that's definitely also happening in Kentucky. And I'll just throw in here um, that uh, the jury duty list provision that Sylvia just mentioned is also a part of Indiana's bill this session. Okay. Well, we will continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Have you ever noticed that state lawmakers in Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana seem to introduce a lot of similar legislation? As we continue our full hour of regional politics, we're going to discuss some of those common political threads. My guests are Indiana Public Broadcasting State House Bureau Chief Brandon Smith, Ohio Public Media State House News Bureau Bureau Chief Karen Kassler, and Kentucky Public Radio Capital Reporter Sylvia Goodman. You can join the conversation by calling 513-419-7100, or you can email talk at wvxu.org. So we're going to talk now a little bit about how the sausage gets made, I guess. Um, I know there are organizations like the National Conference of State Legislatures that have, uh, you know, draft legislation that lawmakers can look at. But there are these other more politically focused organizations that work on that, too. Um, Karen, how much of a role do you think those organizations play in bills like, um, you know, we're seeing things about loosening child labor laws in all three states at various stages, banning DEI measures, transgender care for minors? What kind of roles do organizations, national organizations, play in those kinds of pieces of legislation? Well, I think there's no question. It's not a coincidence when you see some of these things come up. And I was just going to add in our last segment, talking about the election bills that have been proposed in the other states. I mean, the non-citizens voting, we voted on that in Ohio in 2023. It was an amendment that came from the legislature. The voter removal from the rolls after two election cycles, that was an Ohio Supreme Court case, a case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court from Ohio. And there is an amendment that is now pending. There's a lawsuit over this, whether it's going to get to voters that would try to fix some of the things that the other states are starting to do that Ohio has done in terms of eliminating same-day voting and and, uh, making rules on ballot 
drop boxes and things like that. The one way Ohio is different is that we have had early voting for a while and a fairly long period of early voting, especially compared to other states. So that puts Ohio in a slightly different position. But yeah, some of these ideas, these ideas make the rounds. I mean, the bills on banning transgender athletes from girls and women's sports and banning gender transition treatment for minors. Ohio just passed that. That's been moving around into other states. So I think that there is not only these groups that are working together, but also there is the idea of modeling legislation that you see in other states. If you're a lawmaker who's concerned about some of these things, you look at other states, you see what they did, and you kind of just take that idea. There's a bill right now that would seek to cap the cost the, the copay cost for diabetes uh, test strips and, and uh, insulin and all that stuff. And the sponsor even admits he took it straight from West Virginia. So these ideas are coming from different states and, and really kind of copying each other. We do have a caller on the line. Hi, William. Thanks so much for calling. What is your question or comment? Okay. Um, I've been uh, following this since... Uh... 1961, and um, just want to mention that um, it should be asked every interviewer, every news presenter on um, you, on all U.S. networks, um, and especially on NPR, we should ask about the uh, conservative background of every news reader on NPR since they started in 1961, when... Um, Ronald Reagan abolished the fairness doctrine, so we so he didn't think we needed to hear it from the other side. And if we just ask for the background of every news presenter on national public radio or any other uh, national broadcast, you would find that everyone has been chosen specifically for their conservative background, hmm. and that should be asked about. Asked from every news reader that um, is interviewed on on the air. Okay, thanks, William. Um, I'm not sure that I agree with the premise of that question. I don't think any of us um, who are talking during this conversation right now come from a partisan background or conservative background. Anybody want to weigh in on that? Any of you state house folks? Uh, I'll just say that uh, being in Indiana, which is a predominantly conservative state, politically speaking, um, I don't often hear public radio being accused of being too conservative. Um, It's usually the other direction. uh, So that's a new one on me, I'll admit. Um, But it's it's something I think that anyone who covers uh, politics as a journalist often has to confront with people saying, oh, you're too liberal, you're too conservative, you're all liberal, you're all conservative, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I think the quality of our work speaks for itself. Uh, and that's all I'll say about that. Yeah. I'd like to add that the idea of the fairness doctrine being abolished by Ronald Reagan in 1961, I think the caller said it was actually abolished by the FCC in 1987. And of course, Reagan wasn't he wasn't president in 1961, but he did have uh, an opinion on this. So I, I, I think what we always try to do, of course, is is keep our political and personal opinions out of our reporting. I mean, we're human beings. So, of course, we do have perspectives, but we really try to keep that out of the reporting. And NPR seeks to elevate voices that 
often aren't heard in other media. And so I, I think we do get some criticism that we are one way or the other. But uh, I admit that I do get I do hear more that we are too liberal than too conservative. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to add, Sylvia? Uh, no, just that I agree with everything that's been said. And, um, you know, I know that no one here, we all have to talk to politicians from all sides of the aisle, uh, people with all different opinions. And it's our job to make sure that those uh, voices are balanced with the facts and the truth of any situation. Uh, and we do that in a way that is both accurate and fair. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I'd add one, one other thing here too. NPR has some specific policies for reporters and, and anchors on what they can and can't do. I mean, like being in rallies and things like that. I mean, NPR is really clear on making comments that could be viewed as being pundits rather than being reporters and journalists. And so we're all kind of held to that standard as well. Right. I know we're not allowed to have political yard signs or anything like that. So it's very, very strict. Um, I want to continue our conversation. Let's talk about some of these education bills. Um, Brandon, you talked on your show Friday about a new bill proposed in Indiana that would change tenure rules in higher ed. Senator Spencer, Spencer Deary argues his bill would protect professors for views expressed outside the classroom. That is a big deal for tenured faculty in, in, in Indiana. And anybody who favors and understands the reasons why we have tenure should be supportive of that and celebrate that change. And Deary faced criticism from some faculty and Democrats, including Representative Ed Delaney. You're requiring the professors, for example, in sociology or political science, to give a range of opinions and to be neutral, in effect. You are neutering, N-E-U-T-E-R-I-N-G, your faculty. That's what you're trying to do. Brandon, what's going on here? So... Spencer Deary hasn't been coy about the reason for his legislation. He says it's because, um, and he points to a couple of different surveys that indicate this. He says that higher education is a hostile place, or at least not welcoming, to conservative viewpoints. And so his bill, um, in a variety of ways, from giving lawmakers, legislative leaders, the authority for the first time to appoint members to the boards of trustees at Indiana's public colleges and universities um, to the tenure rules that that you're talking about right now, which is, yes, in some ways he is correct. Language that was added into the bill in the process does say, oh, you can't take away someone's tenure or determine their, their ability to get tenure based on things like engaging in political activity outside the classroom, criticizing the leadership of that college or university, um, expressing dissent uh, is the other term in the bill. But it also says that um, not only in order to get tenure, but also to retain tenure, you have to um, foster a culture of intellectual diversity. So basically, they're saying they're taking parts of the Indiana Code that 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 say that talk about diversity in higher education, and they're saying, well, it's not just the way we think of diversity historically, which is generally racial diversity. They're saying it has to be cultural and intellectual diversity. And again, the stated purpose from Senator Deary is we want to make higher education more welcoming to conservative viewpoints. Um, What students and educators and professors have all said is 
well, this is going to be weaponized against professors that, you know, if you're having to do the but all sides, but both sides play that game, uh, it's going to be really easy for students who simply disagree with you to then try and weaponize this bill against those professors that they happen to disagree with. Um, and so I think this is going to be one of those rubber meets the road kind of situations. It doesn't look like the bill is is getting sidelined, although I will say that um, it's, it's a Senate bill that is now in the House and House leadership, um, Sen uh, Speaker of the House, Todd Houston, also a Republican, um, has he sounded a little hesitant about giving legislative leaders, including himself, the authority to point to appoint trustees at these schools. So um, it seems like the bill might undergo changes. It'll be interesting to see what exactly those changes are. Sylvia and Karen, is this reminiscent of higher education legislation that's being discussed in, in your states? Definitely uh, in Kentucky. So uh, we have several DEI bills that are making their way through the Senate and House. Uh, one just passed. Uh, we've also seen legislation that would limit um, limit tenure in the state, um, you know, the DEI bill that we're currently waiting on the House that hasn't had its committee meeting yet would basically limit all funding of DEI offices, of uh, housing that's specifically for different minority groups. Um, I mean, it, it's really a broad reaching piece of legislation and its stated purpose in many ways is to uh, make to reinstate free speech on college campuses, which uh, some lawmakers have said they believe that conservative students have do not feel that they are free to speak. Um, and, you know, there are, I believe the University of Louisville president has come out today saying that uh, this legislation would, you know, be a, a threat to her institution. And oh yeah, this sounds very similar to Senate Bill 83 here in Ohio, which has had a lot of ups and downs. The sponsor, Senator Jerry Serino, a conservative Republican from Northeast Ohio, he has pushed this as a way to, as he puts it, counteract the liberal indoctrination that's happening on college and university campuses. It's been changed from a bill that would affect all colleges to now public colleges and universities. He took out uh, part of the bill that would require no DEI training to reflect the DEI training in some cases will affect whether you get federal grants. So now most DEI training is banned. Uh, he also took out the ban on faculty strikes, which had, I mean, uh, one of the hearings on this bill went for eight hours because people were so concerned about it. And you had faculty members, you had student groups all showing up to protest this. And that's been taken out now, but still the idea remains that there needs to be what's called in the bill, intellectual diversity on a specific set of topics that are outlined that are named in the bill, including climate change policies, electoral politics, marriage, abortion. Those are just a couple of those. And right now the bill has passed the Senate, the House. There's a real debate over whether there are enough votes to pass it. Speaker Jason Stevens says there aren't, but the Republicans who have opposed him as speaker say there are enough votes. So we're still waiting to see what happens with this one. I wanted to add to picking up on the conversation from a little while ago on the fact that you see legislation pop up all over the country. This bill in Indiana doesn't go nearly as far as we've seen in some other places, including notably Florida. Um, and Senator Deary, who's from West Lafayette, which is the home of Purdue University, 
um, told a terrific independent journalist up there, Dave Bangert, who has a, a, a who covers that area. He told him, like, basically, I'm doing this so that we don't go further. He said, some of my colleagues, quite frankly, don't support higher education at all and think we should stop funding it altogether. And he said, Deary feels like his bill is sort of a compromise that that gets to his goal of trying to make higher education a more welcoming place for for conservative students while not going much, much further and restricting a lot of the things that that these schools already do. And Senator Serino in Ohio has said something like that in a way. He said that he has made compromises to get this bill passed, but that if it doesn't pass in this legislative session, which ends at the end of this year, he's going to reintroduce it again and it's going to be tougher. And so he says this is what he wants to do, but he's making concessions to try to get it passed. But he says basically it could go back to where it was, which brought the huge outcry from faculty members and union groups and students. And and it's interesting to hear that message from another state as well. Well, we will be back in just a moment to wrap up our full hour of regional politics. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. We're in the home stretch of our regional politics show, and we're going to talk about some of the news that's unique to Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. My guests are Kentucky Public Radio Capital Reporter Sylvia Goodman, Indiana Public Broadcasting State House Bureau Chief Brandon Smith, and Ohio Public Media State House News Bureau Bureau Chief Karen Kassler. What news are you watching at the State House? Give us a call at 513 419 100, or you can email talk at wvxu.org. Karen, I feel like it's been a while, maybe a five minutes since we talked about House Bill 6. So let's talk about <laughs> the fact that there were more charges filed in the House Bill 6 corruption scandal. That was, of course, involving the nuclear power plant bailout law. Who was charged last week and what were they charged with? Okay, so this is the first set of state criminal charges that have been filed in this corruption scandal that's been called the largest corruption scandal in Ohio history. There were federal trials last year for Republican former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and Ohio Republican Party Chair, the former one, Matt Borges. They were both convicted of their roles in trying to pass House Bill 6, this huge energy bill that included a bailout of a billion dollars over 10 years for two nuclear power plants that were owned by a subsidiary of First Energy. Householder passed the bill. Matt Borges kept it from getting onto the ballot and being repealed. And Householder's doing 20 years and Borges is doing five for their roles in accepting bribes for this. So now we switch to the state charges. The former head of the state's Public Utilities Commission, Sam Randazzo, facing federal charges and state charges now, along with two former executives from First Energy. First Energy admitted to bribing Householder and Randazzo, but the question has always been, who actually authorized those bribes? And this indictment out of Summit County alleges that former CEO Chuck Jones and former Senior Vice President for External Affairs Michael Dowling are the ones who actually did this, and that they had a partnership with Randazzo that went back years to try to get this bill pushed forward so that First Energy could reap some of the benefits of this billion-dollar subsidy from all Ohio ratepayers to go to prop up those two nuclear power plants. So we're waiting to see what happens here. The trial would be in Summit County, and the great news about that is that if it does go forward, we would actually be able 
to see and hear what happens in the courtroom. That's been the frustration for a lot of people trying to tell the story is when it happened in federal court in Cincinnati, there's no cameras and no audio out of federal court. So we couldn't use that information to better tell people what was going on in this very complicated case. And these former First Energy executives who've been charged, uh, have they entered pleas related to these state charges yet? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Chuck Jones, Michael Dowling, and Sam Rendezvous have all pleaded not guilty. And they've also said throughout this whole period, because, again, the arrests in this case happened in June of 2020. So we're approaching the four-year mark for this case. And throughout this whole time, they have maintained their innocence. The, the two executives who were fired in October 2020 after an internal investigation, they had said that they were cooperating. And, and Sam Randazzo has said he is cooperating. He was the head of the Public Utilities Commission when the law passed. He then resigned in late 2020 after the FBI raided his house in Columbus. So this has all been building for a long time. And of course, the other question for a lot of people is, is this the end? There are certainly some people who would suggest that there is possible criminal exposure for other people. Obviously, Governor Mike DeWine and Lieutenant Governor John Houston's names pop up. They are named in a civil lawsuit that was filed by investors of First Energy. And DeWine has offered, has uh, through a subpoena, after a subpoena has offered some records. And then Houston is supposed to give a deposition in that case. But that's not a criminal case. That's a civil lawsuit. I know Governor Mike DeWine appointed Sam Randazzo to that position that he held. Has the governor expressed any regrets over that appointment? Yeah, actually, he took questions from reporters on two days after these indictments came down to basically give us information about the questions that we had. And and specifically, what did he know and when did he know it? Because he did appoint Sam Randazzo to head the Public Utilities Commission right before House Bill 6 passed the legislature and DeWine signed it. And it went through the legislature really fast. It was introduced in early 2019 and it was signed by, I think, June or early July of 2019, which is like a land speed record in Ohio (laughs) in some (laughs) respects. But um, DeWine has said that he did not know that Randazzo took a $4.3 million bribe from First Energy, which is what the indictment alleges. He said he didn't know that. He said his chief of staff had informed him and he had, he was aware that Randazzo had worked for First Energy, but didn't know the money that was involved. He said, if, if I'd known that, then I, I would not have appointed him to this position. And that's, of course, then the question is, did the governor know? Did his chief of staff not tell him? Uh, is that a crime in and of itself? And and the timeline of this, we're still learning more about that. And that's one of the many things we hope to learn from the prosecution of this case. Let's turn to Kentucky. Uh, I think it's fair to say that Kentucky's two U.S. senators are not close allies. uh, But Senator Rand Paul had some particularly harsh words about Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell in a recent interview. His approval ratings in Kentucky are almost below zero. They are the lowest of any elected official in the United States. He is working with Biden and Schumer to funnel your money to Ukraine, but he's not working with conservatives. So he is in the minority of his caucus. There's maybe 10 of them that will vote with all of the Democrats. Oh, you're just he, is using, he is using the minority of the big government Republicans up here to work with Democrats to send your money to Ukraine. If Governor Bashir ran for his Senate seat and the election were held tomorrow, who would win? Bashir. By a lot. Yeah. 
So, Sylvia, you know, Mitch McConnell's been a Kentucky political institution for decades. He, he did have those instances where he froze up during news conferences last year. What are what are Kentucky voters thinking about him? You know, that's a great question. I, I wish I knew the answer completely. Uh, you know, I did talk to a lot of voters. He, you know, his I think it was his first uh, moment he froze up was right before Fancy Farm, uh, which is, you know, this big political picnic in Kentucky. So I talked to a lot of people there. He did show up and he did speak a little bit at that event, you know, after his his health concerns. Um, but people were, you know, talking about how maybe it's time he rode off into the sunset. I don't think there is necessarily quite the, the vitriol that <laughs> was implied there. But there is kind of an idea that uh, he's been in office for a really long time and he has been. Uh, and I don't know about, uh, you know, negative approval rating, uh, you know, back in, I think it was in October, a morning consult poll did show him to be, uh, one of the least popular senators in the country in their own home state. Um, I don't know if that number is still the same today. Uh, but you know, when we're talking about all this, we should still keep in mind, uh, you know, comparing Bashir and McConnell, uh, Democratic governor, Andy Bashir, when he ran against uh, uh, Daniel Cameron last year, he was running in a state race. And people do vote differently in state races versus when they're voting for someone for Senate or for the Congress, um, you know, for U.S. Congress. And also should be noted, Bashir has said, even when asked about the specific comment, that he has no intention of leaving the governorship early, especially not to run against uh, Mitch McConnell in uh, for in 2026. So that should also be noted. Yeah. Thank you for noting that. Has Senator McConnell <laughs> said if he's going to run for re-election? No, he has not. So that uh, is yet to be seen. Uh, you know, actually, when he froze up that first time, I do believe it was from a reporter asking him whether or not he was going to run again. Um, and that was his first uh, moment where he froze in front of reporters. Well, Brandon, I want to talk to you about eyes on education in Indiana. Um, Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita's office launched that education portal earlier this month. What is it and what's it designed to do? Oh, what is it and what it's designed to do are probably two slightly different things. But um, so Todd Rokita, it's not, first of all, it sh I should say, it's not entirely clear what this has to do with the duties and responsibilities of the office of the Attorney General. But Todd Rokita, while he's been in office, um, he was elected in 2020 to be the Attorney General here in Indiana, has um, focused a lot on um, basically stoking the culture wars in education. So he released uh, his so-called Parents' Bill of Rights which was sort of a review of the things you're allowed to do and not allowed to do as a parent as it relates to public education in this state and under federal and state law. Um, uh, again, taking aim at, at, at the so-called DEI and critical race theory in schools, which doesn't exist in K through 12 schools in Indiana or anywhere else. Um, not really. And so this is his latest sort of foray into that area. And what, what this portal allows anyone in the state to do is submit documents, screenshots, photos, anything else of things they don't like or don't approve of in schools. And uh, a big criticism of it so far has been it, there doesn't seem to be much um, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of ensuring that these things are real. Uh, or uh, really what it lacks is is total and utter context. So for instance, there were um, uh, policies submitted about um, 
uh, uh, gender policies at, at different schools, some of which are subject to federal litigation, by the way. And so these documents were submitted to the portal and they were posted as if they were both real and current. And the schools have said, well, nobody talked to us about it. And also these aren't real. Like we ha we don't follow these policies. In some cases, they were never followed. In some cases, they were retired years ago. Uh, but there's also a complete lack of context for some of the materials. For instance, some of the materials on the website that are available for anyone to view and are tied to specific schools and school districts were literally just blurry photos of a computer screen that showed a survey linked to a third-party website that that the person said was being used in those schools. First of all, no proof that they were actually being used in those schools, but also the site itself and those surveys are a really interesting tool where it, it asks you a range of policy positions on a variety of things. Now, the screenshots were related to like um, abortion policy and that they were claiming, oh, that the, the teachers are pushing these ideas on students. What the website actually does is simply ask you, where do you stand on these things? And then at the end of that survey, it says, here's where you align on the political spectrum. Now, I'm not an educator, but I could see how that could be really useful in a government or politics or whatever classroom to say, you know, here's how we sort of, here's how this thing works. Here's which candidates these policy positions align with more, because that's what that site does. But there's no context for any of that on the site. It's simply accusing teachers and schools of doing these things without any sort of context or accountability or or verification from the office of the attorney general. And so teachers and parents have said, you know, what is this? Why are you doing this? You're just, you're going, you're weaponizing these things against teachers. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not, uh, other than it gets Todd Rokita's name out there. It stokes cultural wars that are particularly pleasing to his conservative Republican base. There doesn't seem to be a lot more reason for it. We did get another email from a listener from Cameron. Cameron emails regarding state bills similarly taken up by other states, anti-DEI, anti-trans, etc. How do we, the citizens, learn who or what organizations are lobbying state and federal representatives for their passage? Is there an, uh, a way, do any of you know of a way that, um, you know, somebody, a, a citizen can kind of find out more about organizations that might be behind some of these? Uh, I'll say here in Indiana, it's not always that easy to figure out, not just for regular citizens, citizens, but even journalists. Obviously, you can track some of these bills nationally. And, and so we work with other statehouse reporters um, across the country to say, hey, you've seen this bill here. Where is it coming from? Kind of thing. I'll also um, uh, note that that there is a lobby registration commission here in Indiana. Um, so you, everyone who lobbies officially in, in the state of Indiana has to register both their name and 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 what they spend their money on, but also who they are lobbying for. So there is a little bit of that. So you can kind of track maybe campaign donations or, hey, this lawmaker was taken out to lunch by this lobbyist and this is who this lobbyist um, lobbies for kind of thing. But, but exactly what bills come from which sources is not always readily and easily available. Yeah. I will say. We've got about five seconds if you want to add something, Sylvia. <laughs> Just really quickly, it's very similar in Kentucky, and that is a question that a lot of reporters would love to know the answer to, too. Yes. <laughs> yep. Ohio, the same, too. Okay. Well, I've been talking with Ohio Public Media, State House News Bureau Bureau Chief Karen Kassler. 
Kentucky Public Radio, Capitol Reporter Sylvia Goodman, and Indiana Public Broadcasting State House Bureau Chief Brandon Smith. Thank you all so much for your time today. Great to talk. Thanks. You've been listening to Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. Our producer is Selena Reeder. Associate producer is Asiya Johnson. Technical director is Marshall Verbsky. I'm Lucy May. Thanks so much for listening.